If you'll take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. <clears throat> 11 through 18 will be our text for today. As we continue in our series, the I Am Statements, there are seven of them in John's Gospel. We come to number four today, where Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10. I'm going to actually go back to verse 7 and read from verse 7 down through verse 18. Let's honor the reading of God's Word and stand as we hear God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority <clears throat> to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then verses 19 through 21. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Lord, it is our prayer that you would open our eyes now and help us to see and to hear, to believe, and to respond. Father, would you shepherd our hearts as we look at your word? Guide us, O oh God, that we might be your faithful sheep to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're picking up in chapter 10. We were in chapter 10 last week as we looked at Jesus' statement, I am the door. And today we're looking at how Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. We said last week, these two are, are, are used really in the same figure of speech and somewhat connected and um, uh, intertwined within this particular chapter of Scripture. But we want to separate them a bit and focus in our attention this morning, particularly on Jesus being our good shepherd I wouldn't make this necessarily a statement of absolute, you have to believe this, but I would argue that this particular I am statement is perhaps the, uh, the richest of all of them when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. And this, this metaphor of sheep and shepherd that's used not just in John 10, but really all throughout the scripture is uh, rich and, and deep with, with meaning and impact. And so as we turn our attention today to John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses primarily 11 through 18. I want us to consider, in light of Jesus being our good shepherd, I want us to consider several things that Jesus does for his sheep. Several things Jesus does. We're going to look at three, most likely, uh, but three things at least that Jesus does for his sheep from this text. This is not the only things Jesus does for his sheep. These are just things right here in this particular text that we're going to look at and let God's Word inform us of. So let's look at these together. Three things that Jesus does for his sheep, him being the good shepherd. First thing that we see from this text is that he dies for his sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, dies for his sheep. In verse 11, Jesus uses this fourth I am statement. So far in John, I am the good shepherd. 
Now again, he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As I just said a moment ago, there's a lot of sheep and shepherd imagery or metaphor used throughout the Bible as God describes his relationship to his people. A well-known text that we uh, can often go to, uh, it's not necessarily a, a positive text, it's, it's kind of a bad situation, is found in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, there we find the metaphor of sheep and shepherd being used. It's also used in Jeremiah chapter 23 and similarly to describe the community of God's people and their leaders. And what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 34 is God is speaking out. He's condemning the shepherds, the leaders of the people of God of that particular time there uh, in Israel. And in verses 1 through 6, he begins to basically call them out there in Ezekiel chapter 34. He's telling them particular things that they're doing that have not been helpful. And as a result, the sheep were scattered, wandering all over the mountains. I want you to listen in verse 7. I want to pick up in verse 7. Again, these are the shepherds that God is condemning, the leaders of Israel that God is criticizing and condemning and calling to account. He says, therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their, feeding, to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And he goes on in verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he was among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And then he says in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. God makes a point there, doesn't he? But even though these shepherds of sort had failed his people, they had been useless shepherds. God says there that I will be the shepherd of my sheep, I will go after my sheep, I will bring them back, and I will bring them to a land where they will have plenty. And here now in John chapter 10, Jesus is stating the same thing. He could even go back and he's been contrasting himself to the leaders of that day, the false shepherds, if you will, and even the Pharisees more specifically. He's doing the same thing that we see God doing in Ezekiel chapter 34. And now he's saying, I am the good shepherd. And in a way, he's fulfilling Ezekiel chapter 34 as he declares himself to be this shepherd of the sheep. Notice here in this chapter, in chapter 10 of John, that Jesus compares himself to the hired hand. Verse 12, he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he compares himself in verse 12 to the hired hand. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd doesn't own the sheep, sees wolves, sees, sees prey coming, sees, a, or excuse me, sees the predators coming, the wolves coming, the, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not a shepherd. Cares nothing for the sheep. And Jesus reiterates again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. He goes on and says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It was common in New Testament days for shepherds to hire out for periods of time hired hands. They basically would receive a amount of money to go and whether it was the sheep were in the sheep pen or even out grazing, they would just be hired people to kind of keep watch on the sheep. And really, 
the shepherds and the hired hands were, were vastly different in how they approached the sheep. The shepherds had investment in these sheep. They knew the sheep. They cared deeply for the sheep. The hired hand cared deeply for the money and not the sheep. And so if something bad happened, something bad went down and uh, a wolf came and attacked the sheep, where do you think the hired hand was? Not defending the sheep. He took his money and ran, right? He was gone. And so Jesus is, is comparing himself here to that of a hired hand. He cares nothing about the sheep. Rather, the shepherd puts himself in harm's way, lays his life down for the sake of the sheep. The contrast is clear. Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep, and in contrast to the unfaithful hired hands, he gives himself for his sheep. Notice in the text, Jesus is willing to lay down his life. I want you to notice a couple things, actually, as he lays down his life for the sheep. First of all, his willingness. He is willing to do that. Now, we know in verses 17 and 18, he goes on further and elaborates on laying down his life for the sheep, but he confirms two important points here. First of all, his willingness to, to sacrifice himself for the sake of the sheep. No less than four times from verse 11 to verse 18, Jesus makes reference to laying down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Four times at least in this text, Jesus is describing this activity of laying down his life for the sheep. He does this willingly. In fact, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Something we need to make sure that we understand clearly. We must never conclude that Jesus was a powerless victim of bad circumstances that eventually leads to his crucifixion, that God somehow takes and turns a bad situation to good. We should never conclude that. He was innocent, but Jesus was not an innocent victim. Certainly the details of his crucifixion included the evil schemes of the Pharisees and the crowds and the leaders of that day, even Pilate. But friends, none of these things could have gone forward apart from the sovereign willingness of Jesus to lay his life down for the sheep. We know that in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is describing his, um, his death. He's, he's talking about what's going on or what's going to happen. And uh, this is during his betrayal and arrest. Verse 47 of Matthew chapter 26, uh, we know that Judas comes uh, along with the crowds with swords and clubs. Verse 49, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. That hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you, not, have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then we read, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus understood in his betrayal, his arrest, his execution even, that, that this was part of a plan the Father had decreed and that the Son willingly took upon himself to lay down his life for his people. Jesus submits himself to death, even death on a cross, because it was the plan that God had made to save the sheep. J.C. Ryle Writing about this text, he said, His death was not a death of a martyr. 
who sinks at last overwhelmed by enemies, but the death of a triumphant conqueror who knows that even in dying, he wins for himself and his people a kingdom and a crown of glory. This is the work of our good shepherd, laying down his life willingly. No one takes it from him, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I am willing to do this. But I want you to notice also his authority, the authority that he has to do so. It's important that we realize that not only did Jesus willingly lay down his life, he had the authority to do so. In verse 18, second part of verse 18, he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Now remember, he's still talking to the Pharisees. If you went with us last week, chapter 10 is set in a context that comes out of chapter 9, and Jesus has been communicating, if you will, with the Pharisees. They're, they're um, critical of a healing that he had just accomplished with this blind man. He heals this blind man, and the Pharisees are critical of that and, and really don't buy it, and they don't believe that Jesus was part of that. And so Jesus is setting the record straight here and declaring himself to be who he is. He's the door. He's the good shepherd of the sheep. He has authority. And now we see that he has authority to lay down his life. Now, think about that for a minute. In some degree, all of us have that authority, don't we? You have the power, quote unquote, if you so choose, to lay down your life. You could do that. The thing that makes you different from Jesus is that you don't have the authority to raise your life up again. You, you, you can't undead yourself, right? So Jesus has this authority. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So by his own volition, by his own will, and by his own authority, Jesus, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. One of the things that we need to realize is when Jesus does this, he does this with a particular focus and guaranteed results. Jesus is not an aimless shepherd. Jesus does not just simply lay down his life in hopes that sheep will come running in. Jesus lays down his life with a perfect understanding of who he's laying down his life for. And certainly while his death was sufficient to cover the sins of every person on the planet, we know that it only impacts those who hear the voice of the good shepherd, believe in him, and follow him. Therefore, he lays down his life for the sake of his sheep. Jesus does this because he's willing and because he has authority to do that. It's a demonstration of an amazing love that we see from our good shepherd. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 Jesus says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it was the love of this good shepherd that compelled him to go forward in gathering these, these wandering shepherdless sheep into his flock and the, re, and the way that he secured their salvation was by laying down his life. He had compassion, which led him to make this willing choice to die for them in order to secure them. Friends, this is the hope that we have. This truth where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, is the hope that we have in this world. This is the good news that we have, that we hear, that we need to proclaim that Jesus dies, he lays down his life. This laying down his life is certainly reference to his crucifixion. The fact that he took upon himself as a substitute the sins that we all have committed, that we all have, the, the fallenness of his sheep, he takes upon his own shoulders to forgive them and to secure them forever in the kingdom of God. And friend, if you're here today and you have not known what it means to have your sins forgiven, if you don't know what it means to be a sheep 
and the flock of this good shepherd. The, the promise of God's word is that if you would turn from your sin and you would turn to this good shepherd and you would believe in him and you would trust in him and embrace him as your good shepherd and follow him, that your sins will be forgiven, not because you are smart enough, not because you're willing enough and not because you're bright enough and able enough, but because Jesus lays down his life for people just like you. And if you would turn from your sin and trust in him, you would be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. He dies for his sheep. There's a second truth that we see from this text. He knows his sheep. Not only does the good shepherd give his life sacrificially for the sheep, he knows his flock. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now, this particular focus here, I know my own and my own know me. Notice how he describes this relationship. Just as... The Father knows me, and I know the Father. The knowledge Jesus has for his sheep expresses a deep, intimate, lasting relationship. Back in verses 1 through 5, Jesus highlights this relationship. He begins the chapter with this this relational knowledge where he's comparing the shepherd to that of a stranger. And often a a sheepfold, we looked at this a little bit last week, or a sheep pen, uh, there would be a a surrounding wall with one opening, and many times, depending on where they were, especially if they were in a town, there would be multiple flocks in one sheep pen. And the unique thing, I've not been a shepherd, so I don't know this uh, by experience, but from the things I've read and from the stories I've heard, that sheep know distinctly the voice of their particular shepherd. In fact, if you were a shepherd of this flock over here, flock A, and you were to go and you were to call for flock B, they wouldn't follow you. They're going to only follow the voice of their own shepherd. And so you have multiple sheep, uh, multiple flocks of sheep in one pen. And so when a shepherd would come and he would make a particular call for his sheep, only his flock would come to him. The rest of the sheep would not. So this is the the imagery that we have here, this this intimate knowledge, this relationship that Jesus has with his sheep. And notice it's reciprocal. I know them and they know me. And notice what relationship he compares this to. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Think about that, friends. Think about what Jesus just said. The knowledge that he has of you, if you are his sheep, is just like the knowledge that he, the Son of God, has with the Father. And that has been a perfect, eternal knowledge that has always existed. This intimate relationship between the Father and the Son that has always existed, Jesus is saying, The knowledge I have now, the relationship I now have with my sheep is just like that. As Jesus knows us in the most profound way possible. He knows us better than we know ourselves. After all, he knit us in our mother's womb. I was listening to a talk just the other day. There was a talk describing some of the top issues of cultural engagement that Christians are facing today. And several things that made the list, obviously, things such as transgender issues, religious liberty, things that you would expect to be on that list. But there was one thing on that list that kind of took me by surprise. Again, they're talking about cultural issues that Christians need to pay attention to and engage in. Among the things listed on that list was loneliness. One of the top cultural issues of our day is the issue of loneliness. Think about that. That just doesn't immediately strike us of what we would think about, would it? I mean, after all, we live in a digital age where you can have access to virtually most any person in the world immediately. Just think about the irony there. The, the, the more our digital capacities and, uh, and, and capabilities have grown, 
Some are arguing the more lonely our world actually has become. We live in a digital age that makes it appear that others have this vast array of friends when the reality is that those who truly know you are very few. Those who have a true, working, intimate, relational knowledge of you are very few. Friends, it doesn't matter how many streaks you have on Snapchat, how many likes you have on Facebook, how many retweets you've got going for you. Those aren't going to count for anything when you stand before the Good Shepherd. You can't gauge, you can't gauge how well people know you by some kind of digital quota. In fact, what people are arguing today is the more you have of those things, the less you are known. Because that's what we're flocking to. We're, we're going more and more and more to this digital age where we're knowing fewer people. The relationships we have because of the digital age is actually reducing. It's just a kind of a side exhortation that we, friends, we just frankly need to put our phones down. We need to put our phones down and invest in meaningful relationships that don't involve our two thumbs. And what I'm getting at here is that the knowledge that Jesus has of us is on a much deeper, much more intimate basis than what we would ever know in what is common to us today. Jesus knows his sheep. He knows you inside and out. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows the struggles you have with sin. He knows you perfectly. He knows you. He knows even the motives that we have. And friend, this knowledge that Jesus has for his sheep ought to be a source of great comfort and hope. That ought to encourage you. Now, for some of us, it, it frightens us that God, know, you know, we, we try to cover up sin. We try to hide ourselves and God, God knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing can be hidden from God. Knowledge he has for his sheep ought to encourage us. Even when we feel the depths of loneliness, even when we feel the depths of struggle, we ought to be encouraged that we have a shepherd who knows us perfectly. Because of that, friends, we could never be truly lonely if we're looking to the Good Shepherd. John Calvin, speaking of this knowledge, said, His knowledge proceeds from love and is accompanied by care. The knowledge that God has of us is, is, is motivated, it proceeds from love and it's accompanied by care. Jesus does not just have a, a, a knowledge of you. He knows you. There's a difference. There are a lot of people you know about, right? You know of. But how many people do you truly know? This is the good shepherd's knowledge. He doesn't just know you. You're not just a number in heaven. You're a name, a face, a life years and days and weeks and months. This is who you are. The Good Shepherd knows you. I want to read on in verse uh, 24. Jesus, after the, uh, the Pharisees are, again, troubled. In verse 24, it says, The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> That's funny because... He's pretty much told them, right? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But listen, look at verse 26. 
but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. the loving knowledge that Jesus has for his sheep. And in verse 31, the Pharisees, the Jews, respond, how? They picked up stones to stone him. Friends, Jesus knows his sheep. Number three, not only does he die for his sheep, not only does he know deeply his sheep, He unifies his sheep. He gathers his sheep into one flock. I want you to look back at verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. If that says fold in your Bible, you need to write flock. That's a mistranslation. Two different Greek words, fold and flock. The reason I make that emphasis is because the Roman Catholic Church has taught out of this mistranslation that there is one fold, therefore salvation comes through the one church. So make sure we get that. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. The fold that he's describing there is the fold of Judaism. He's bringing them out of the fold of Judaism and putting them into his flock. But he's also, he also has others who aren't part of the same fold as Judaism. He's bringing them out from the Gentiles. I want us to see two important things about the unification of the sheep, the process and the result. First of all, the process. Jesus is speaking about gathering for himself a people. Obviously, it begins with the Jewish community but here he's making clear that this work will extend to the Gentiles. I have other sheep, and I must bring them also. His sheep will be a diverse flock. His sheep will be reflective of the nations. Notice he says three very critical things in this text. One, I have other sheep. This is a particular knowledge that he has. He has other sheep, he has them. He's already named them. He knows them. I have them. It's not a general statement. I just have other sheep somewhere out there. They probably exist. No, he knows he has them. And number two, I must bring them also. And then number three, and they will listen. Right here, we have a testimony to the scope and work of gospel missions. And the mission to which we've been called to see this flock formed, we are told right here in this text, will succeed. We're not sent on a fool's errand to the world. We are sent with a gospel mission to be gospel proclaimers to a lost and broken world because Jesus has said, I have other sheep out there and they're going to hear hear the voice of me calling for them and they are going to listen. They're going to come. Friends, there is no question that right here in this text that we see a clear reference to the sovereignty of God in salvation. You cannot escape it. Right here, I have other sheep. I must bring them. It's a clear reference, inference to the doctrine of election. I have them, I must bring them, and the effectual call of God. They will listen. Sometimes people argue that the sovereignty of God and salvation is a deterrent for evangelism and missions, but apparently they've not read John chapter 10. It's not a deterrent. It's the very motivation in which we go to the nations. I would not want to go on the mission field or proclaim the gospel or do evangelism if God were not sovereign. 
If it was up to me to convince someone or it was up to them to decide on their own and their own power, whether or not they were going to believe, I would stay home. But because God is sovereign, because he is powerful, because he has a mission that impacts Jews and Gentiles, because he has guaranteed that there is a flock out there and they're going to hear his voice and respond, then let's go get them. Let's go to the nations. Let's go preach the good news. You say, well, people don't seem to want to hear it today. Friends, there's sheep out there somewhere. They're out there waiting for the means which God has ordained to bring them into the flock. And that means is the preaching of the gospel. Spurgeon once said, God is not unfaithful to forget the price for which his son has paid. He will not suffer his substitution to be in any case ineffectual, an ineffectual dead thing. Tens of thousands of redeemed ones are not regenerated yet, but regenerated they must be. And this is our comfort when we go forth to them with the quickening word of God. As Jesus says, they must come. And whenever there is a must with God, things will happen. It will happen. Therefore, as Christ's sheep, we are also his ambassadors, giving voice to the call of our good shepherd. That is the process, gospel missions. The result, there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. The reason this rhetoric would have been so offensive. The reason in verse 31 they're picking up stones to throw at Jesus is not only has he for the fourth time now in these I am statements declared himself to be divine, he is now declaring that he is bringing into one flock Jew and Gentile. There has been perhaps no greater hatred and division between two groups of people than that which existed between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And Jesus says, they're all mine. There will be one flock. There's not going to be a Jewish flock over here and a Gentile flock over here, and I've got two kind of plans laid out for them. Nope, I'm one shepherd, one gospel, one people. This is my plan. Reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. We've looked at this text before, but in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul unpacks this a bit. As he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, therefore, in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's describing the the state of the Gentile people before they heard the gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that, might, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into one dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul makes clear that this dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile now has been obliterated in Christ. He has one people. He has one flock. And that is exactly 
what he pursues. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if we truly recognize the unity for which our good shepherd died. Or if we recognize it, how hard do we work to maintain it? In the next chapter, in chapter 11, there's this plot that develops to kill Jesus. It included the Pharisees and others of the council. But Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, in verses 51 and 52, makes this prophecy. He prophesied there that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Verse after verse after verse, you cannot escape this beautiful reality that we have a good and glorious shepherd that is working to bring about this beautifully diverse flock comprised of Jews and Gentiles. It's what Jesus was doing then, and that's what he's continuing to do now. He's gathering in from every tribe and nation a flock, a flock that it is diverse made of all shades, shapes, and cultures. And friends, this has massive implication on how we must think about and do ministry. It means that we must care about portions of the flock that don't look like us. means that our local churches need to reflect more and more of the diversity that we find clearly presented in the Bible. And when our hearts push against that, we need to be asking why. The more that the local church can reflect and live out its oneness, the more beautiful it will be. There is no greater testimony to this community than for a watching community to see a church that actually reflects the diversity of its community. Churches that are willing to lay aside their ethnocentrism, which means, it's a fancy word of, of, of just saying your tendency to focus only on your kind of person, the more we're willing to lay that aside and to focus more on a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, rich and poor congregation, the more faithful to the one flock image we will be. You know, I hear sometimes there are lots of things and a lot of things to even say in this kind of conversation, but a lot of times I, I hear well-meaning Christians, and I've probably even said some things like this, is that even when it comes to racial issues. Well, there's just one human race. That's true. That's true. We're one human race. But God in his infinite wisdom and for his glory has created a human race that is made up of all shades of colors, all kinds of people making the one human race. But let's not rob ourselves or even more importantly, rob God of his glory to diminish the beautiful diversity that he has created in his image bearers. So yes, there's one human race, but let's be a church that reflects that human race in its diversity. Let's not get so so caught up in this conversation and, and react in such a way where we diminish the beauty that God has created. We are different, and that is part of the glory of God. It is part of being his image bearers. And we should see our differences as part of that beautiful diversity and seek to live life together in such a way that reflects his glory in our unity. The fact that he brings Gentiles into the fold is just a beautiful picture of what he's doing in the world today. This unity that 
we see that should be more and more apparent locally extends globally. I have a lot of concerns for the church. And one of my concerns, when I say the church in general, my particular concerns and things I'm thankful for and concerned about even for this church, but when I say the church, I'm speaking universal. One of my concerns, particularly for the church in the United States, is that there is this Christianity that exists that looks more American than it does biblical. Friends, we need to realize that as a Christian, you and I have more in common with a Christian Syrian refugee than with a non-Christian coworker who might have gone to the same university as you did. The oneness that Jesus has called us to is one that we must delight in and celebrate and pursue. Therefore, as a Christian, we must first think as kingdom citizens, not as a voting block, but rather as a flock that Jesus has died for. And friend, that flock extends well beyond any geographical border that you can draw, any kind of ethnic border that you can draw, any kind of socioeconomic border or map you can draw, any kind of political party affiliation border you can draw. The flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, the flock that belongs to the Good Shepherd, is one flock comprised of many kinds of different people, and we, friends, as a local church, need to reflect that more and more to the glory and praise of God, and that requires hard, long-term work. and a work from which we think first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not as citizens of a particular nation. While we're thankful to be citizens of this particular nation, we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. And that, friends, must drive our ministry. Seven chapters later, in, God, in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays a lengthy prayer. Chapter 17 is known as his high priestly prayer. And there Jesus prays for his flock. This is what he says, just a portion of that prayer. He's praying to his father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And just as a good shepherd would do, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He goes on to pray that they would not be kept out of the world, but from the evil one, that they would be sanctified, sent out into the world. And then in verse 20 of that same chapter, he goes on to pray, and he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe, those who must come, those who will listen through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why is he praying for all this? At the end of that prayer, he gives us the reason. The reason he's praying for his people and for the unity and for the growth of his people is so that the world may believe you have sent me. He prays for this because it's the means through which God will use to display the gospel and bring the nations to himself. 
Friends, Jesus has died for his flock. He knows his flock. He's unified his flock, and he's prayed for his flock. Friends, if he's died for this, and if he's prayed for this, then it ought to be something that we live for and that we live to display for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about these wonderful truths and realities that we have as your people, Father, we have been given so much. We have a good shepherd that has laid down his life for us. We have a good shepherd that knows us better than anyone else that could ever know us. We have a good shepherd that is bringing into one flock, people of all tribes, of all races, of all backgrounds. Father, what a beautiful, glorious thing that you have done and are doing. Father, would you help us live in a way that reflects this more and more every day? Father, maybe that some are here today and they feel like that lost sheep. They've wandered away from the flock. Father, would you show them that their good shepherd is there to care for them? Father, maybe that some are here today and they, they're wrestling with reality that they're not even in your flock. Father, would you work in their hearts and open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel? Grant them repentance and the willingness to believe that they too may be welcomed and to see you as their good shepherd. Lord, as we think about all the implications of this text, Lord, would you give us wisdom and grace that we would be found faithful as your sheep as we trust our good shepherd. Lord, you are good, and you are our shepherd. Help us to trust you, and help us to walk in your grace. All our days, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.